Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. So this morning, um, we're continuing on our series um, of the I Am series, obviously. Now, this morning is going to be slightly different because the, the verses that we're in this morning are technically, is technically not an I am statement. So for those of you who woke up this morning and going, oh, I'm getting an I am statement this morning, I apologize if in, for your disappointment um, leading in. Um, but it's a, it's a different type of self-disclosure statement this morning that Jesus has made. Um, and it fits completely within the context of what we've been talking about um, and what we were talking about for the rest of this year. So I'm actually um, quite excited to get into it. Um, so we're going to be in uh, John chapter 4 this morning. So we're um, in the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And I'm starting at verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went to, again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of, of Samaria called Sakar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to drink water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And when she asked, for, uh, and she asked, sorry, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. We'll stop there for now. So the question I'm going to start with this morning is, who knows what it's like to be lost? I'm not talking about I took a wrong turn in the bush sort of lost. I'm talking about you look at your life and go, how on earth did I get here? Or you are where you currently are and going, I have no idea where I'm going. And I'm completely lost. I spent years and years and years of my life being lost, of not knowing how I ended up, where I ended up. I always seemed to fall ass backwards into jobs that I necessarily didn't like. Um, and I graduated high school, um, as you do, and I had no idea what I wanted to do, none at all. And all of my friends were all like, oh, I'm going to university, I'm going to become this, and they all know exactly what they were going to do and where they were going to go, and they all got their first preferences and all that sort of stuff, and there's me going, well, crap, I don't know. So I, I worked for a little while, I went and studied, oh, no, sorry, I went and travelled for a while um, over in England and Europe, and I got back and I found myself, at, I was about 20 at the time, and went, I hate my life. I was working for, at a Hearns, 
Does anyone old enough remember what a Hearns is? So for those of you who don't know what a Hearns is or was, a Hearns is the old David Jones. It was the high-end sort of department store in the city. Um, I actually was working there where David Jones took it over and pretty much fired everybody, but that's a different story. Um, and I was just like, I hate my life. This is horrible. So I did what any young man at about 20 would do and went, I've got a great idea. I'm going to join the Army Reserves. <laughs> so I did. And you know when you think you have a great idea and it seems like a great idea at the time, but then the outworking of that idea was like, oh my God, I've made a horrible mistake. That was what happened, okay? So I went to, um, did the, like the written tests and the psych tests and all that sort of stuff. And then I um, got called in to go into the city to go do your physical. So you had to do like, you know, push-ups and sit-ups and your beep test and all that sort of stuff. And there was quite a few of us there who were doing this, this physical test. And I knew it, but you don't realise the, the gravity of what the decisions that you're currently making. So I did the test, and those of us who passed, pretty much they went, say goodbye to your families who are here, now get on the bus. So we did. And they drove us to the airport, and we flew ANSET. That's how old this is, right? So we flew ANSET to Melbourne, uh, in Victoria, obviously, and then we, to pick up the Victorian recruits, and then we drove from there to Kapuka, which is in New South Wales, near Wagga Wagga. And you know those classic scenes of, you know, new recruits getting off the bus and there's all these sergeants and all of that going, don't call me, sir, I work for a living, all that sort of stuff? That happened to me. And it was like, it was horrible. And it's like, well, you know, it's almost that tick, this is something else I don't want to do with my life. So at least I gained something from it. But I, it was, oh my God, it was just horrible. And... Um, it was probably the worst nine weeks of my life, quite frankly. Now, I tell these stories and people don't believe me because I know that we've spoken, Chelsea, with Dave and stuff, and they go, it seems like you've done too much to actually for it to be true. Not that you disbelieve me, but it's a bit like, eh, okay. So I have proof. Olivia, can you show the first photo for me? There's me. Um, these, my mum actually scrapbooked all of these, so I couldn't unscrapbook them because they're all stuck down. Um, so me in the middle there of graduating or whatever you want to call it, 60, maybe five kilos, soaking wet. Um, you know, bayonet training, all that sort of stuff. Next photo, please, um, Olivia. So look at us looking tough, hey? So there's me on the top right. Um, Having just done, um, the, um, like we'd been out for a few nights um, doing some camping and whatever the case may be and had this long walk afterwards with full packs that was horrible. And then last photo, please, there. There's me. Look at me, hey? <laughs> what a killer. Um, so it's true. I was there, okay? So I did it. It was horrible. Thanks, Olivia. Um, now, I know that the army is for some people, and I know that when they join, that they find their place, but it, that, wasn't, that wasn't my story. I was still, I left there and came back and went, well, I'm still lost. And this is where we find ourselves this morning. So we have Jesus talking to a, a woman at a well, and this woman is completely lost. 
She has inherited a life, either by circumstance or by choice. And she, and you can see from some of the languaging in this story that she has absolutely no joy. And the thing is, this conversation between Jesus and this Samaritan woman should never have happened. It was absolutely something that should not have happened for a few different reasons. So the first one is that Jesus was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. So just as a bit of background to that narrative or that story, so the Jews had been in exile in Babylon until about the mid-500 B.C., And it was during their exile that the central region of of, um, Jerusalem, of um, Israel, that's what I'm saying, anyway, you know, of their region, of their territory, was then occupied by the Samaritans. And then when the Jews came back, the Samaritans went, well, that's nice, but we're not leaving. And so... The Samaritans also assumed that they were and, and claimed that they were the true descendants of Abraham. So there was this claim of authority against both cultures. So this feud had gone on for about 500 years until like in Jesus' time. And the thing is, the Samaritans didn't culturally... Um, occupy any specific sort of race. So obviously the area was um, ruled by the Romans and the Romans considered them Jews, but the Jews considered them Gentiles. So they had this weird middle ground where they didn't belong to anybody. And so they were almost hated by everyone along with the Jews. And sometimes there was fighting and sometimes there were skirmishes, but mostly they just simply wouldn't mix. And they especially wouldn't share eating and drinking implements. So the idea that Jesus is asking her for a drink is unheard of. Because to ask a Samaritan for a drink of an implement that they've used would make a clean Jew unclean, ceremonially and holy. The second reason was that at this time, Jesus was considered a holy man. He wasn't Messiah or anything at this stage in the story. Well, he was, but they didn't know that at that time. And so, a devout Jewish man in this time would never have been caught alone with a woman. And if they had been alone with a woman, they certainly would never have spoken to them. Because um, there was a risk of impurity, there was a risk of gossip, there were, the, the risk of immorality was too high. Apparently, speaking to a woman now is, you know, very bad. Can't handle themselves. And when we read further on, we're not going to hit that this morning, but in John chapter 4, verse 27, so just the very next verse after this story almost, it tells us how shocked the disciples were that Jesus was actually talking to this woman. The third reason or issue of why this conversation shouldn't have happened was of the character of the woman whom he was talking to. Now, the normal times for women 
to go and draw water from the well was either early a.m. or late in the evening when it was cooler. This woman was drawing water from a well at midday, the hottest part of the day. And so they were... Now, I mean, she could have been there for various reasons, but the most likely reason that she was there was because she was trying to avoid meeting anybody. Her, her lifestyle that she'd had five husbands and all that sort of stuff that we'll get into in a minute would have meant that she was being completely shunned by her community. She would have been the subject of gossip and ridicule. So she was avoiding everybody. She shouldn't have been there. The thing is... It would seem that this conversation was a divine appointment. Um, Olivia, can you put that map up for me, please? So just so you can get your bearings of what we're talking about here. So there's Judea at the bottom and there's Galilee at the top. So Jesus was moving in between the two. And I don't know if you can see it because, I mean, I can because I'm standing here, but... Um, pretty much right in the middle of Samaria, it's sort of, um, there's, there's, there's actually the Samaria and then there's the Sakaar. So we're sort of like halfway up in the blue. So that's where we are. Now, Jews could go through Samaria, obviously. They weren't banned from going through there. And Josephus, which is a historian, pretty much says that it was about a three-day walk to go through there. So if you were in a rush as a Jew, wanting to go to either Judea or Galilee or vice versa, you would go through Samaria. But more often than not, what the Jews would normally do is that they would cross over the Jordan River and walk up the Jordan Valley and then cross back west to avoid the area completely because they didn't want to associate with them at all. And so, you can take that down now, thanks, Olivia. So, the thing is, we learn in John chapter 4, verse 1, that Jesus had attracted the attention of the Pharisees. They'd started to go, hang on, what's going on with this bloke? So, he, he fled. And because he, and it's argued, because he was making sort of this quickish retreat from the Pharisees, that's why he was going through Samaria. And that's why this encounter happened. But most commentators note that when there is a necessity laid on Jesus in his ministry, it's always a God moment. It's always God ordained. And it's always then Jesus filling, fulfilling the divine will in some way. So Jesus doesn't necessarily go through Samaria for safety away from the Pharisees, but he's actually there to accomplish work assigned by the Father. And Jesus' mission wasn't necessarily planned to Samaria at this stage, but it was planned by God. So this encounter between Jesus and this lost woman was a divine appointment. So let's continue. We'll start back in John chapter 4, verse 10. I'm going to be reading through to 26. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you 
living water. Sir, the woman said, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw the water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands, and the man who you now is—sorry, the man you now have—is is not your husband. What you have said is true, sir. The woman replied, "I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that uh, that the place to worship is in Jerusalem." Jesus told her, "Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans." worship what you do not know we worship what we do know because salvation is from the jews but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth yes the father wants such people to worship him god is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth the woman said to him i know that the messiah is coming who is called christ when he comes he will explain everything to us jesus told her I, the one speaking to you, am he. So as we start this, this uh, like looking at this passage, there's a context that we need to look at it in. Okay, there's actually this prevailing context. And we need to be reminded that whatever this living water is, that Jesus is talking about, we can't earn it. We can't work for it. Jesus tells us in verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God, the precursor to everything that is about to happen in this, con in this conversation and for us through eternity is in the context of a gift. And the word gift here stresses the freeness of it all. And it refers specifically to a divine bounty. It's not like I gave Hobie a gift. There's something in a transactional sense that is from God. This is the word that John's using here. So we can't earn it and we can't work for it. Now, this passage highlights a few different things, some of which I actually can't talk about this morning because I simply don't have the time to. But as the more and more I looked at it, the more and more was like, oh my gosh, this is like a five-sermon series. So the first thing being it talks about is Jesus' humanity. And you go, well, yeah... But, we, the, but what the pre-existent word that we learn about in John chapter 1, verse 1, gets thirsty and hungry and he's tired. That's something really important that we need to understand. 
The second thing I would love to explore is that Jesus is revealed as a prophet. What does that even mean? Not only in the context of of then, but what does that mean for us now? And the third thing that I'd, I'd love to discuss in reading this passage is that Jesus reveals his divine being. She calls him, well, she says that he's, there's the Messiah coming, and he goes, well, the one that you're speaking to, that I'm that. But in my reading of this, of this, this text is that the Samaritan understanding of what, a, what, a, what Messiah was is completely different to the Jews. They re, the Samaritans rejected most of the, old, of the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. So their idea of what Messiah was is different to what we're thinking right now. And and exploring what that means is actually important as well. What it means to worship in spirit and truth. That's something I'd love to explore with you. All of these things I simply don't have time for, unfortunately. So we're going to drill down in sort of the central few verses today and talk about living water. So when Jesus refers to living water, it brings up a couple of really important contextual points that we need to think about. And I think if we chase down these, these, these contextual points, it actually lands us pretty close to what Jesus is talking about. So culturally, when living water was referred to, they meant water that flowed. Water from a river, from a stream, from a spring as opposed to water from a pond or a cistern that did not flow and left too lo- and if left too long got stale okay so there's this idea so when we start to look at she's and Jesus is talking about living water her misunderstanding of what he's talking about is understandable because what she thought living water meant was actually something what we don't really think about now and biblically this is not the first time that the term living water has been used. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, God declares, For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. So God here tells us that he is the fountain of living water, and that the people have rejected him. They have chosen instead to rely on themselves and the stagnant waters of the cisterns that they've built for themselves. And in doing so, they now have nothing to sustain their life. The prophets Zechariah and Ezekiel both prophesy and look forward to a time when living water will flow from Jerusalem. We'll just read Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. On that day, living water will flow from Jerusalem, half of it towards the eastern sea and the other half towards the western sea, in summer and winter alike. On that day, the Lord will become king over the whole earth, the Lord alone and his name alone. So the metaphor here speaks of God and his grace. It speaks of the knowledge of God. It speaks of the life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit. 
Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, and Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27, speak of a water that promises cleansing. We'll just read Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove sorry, I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So biblically and culturally, when we're talking about the living water, we're speaking about purification, we're speaking about cleansing, we're speaking about the presence of God. Now, coming back into John's gospel, when we look at his usage of the living water and the quenching thirst, um, and the quenching of thirst, John picks up on all of these sort of biblical and cultural themes. So, last week in our key verse um, of John chapter 6, verse 35, where Jesus declares himself the bread of life, the one thing we didn't explore was the second half of that passage, mainly because I knew that we'd be talking about the living water this week. So John chapter 6, verses 35, I'm the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes from me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Now in this passage, Jesus calls himself the bread of life but he doesn't refer to himself as a living water. Jesus is the one who gives the living water. So if the living water isn't Jesus, who or what is it? In John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39... The living water that flows from within the believer is explained in terms of the Holy Spirit. The one who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And when we're back in John chapter 4, something similar is required here. Jesus is speaking of the new life that he and he alone can and will give, and that new life that he is talking about that only he can give is connected and associated with the Spirit. As often when you have someone who's, well, Jesus, and someone who is not, you often find a conversation that is operating on two different planes. And that's what's happening here in this text. In verse 10, Jesus says, you know, he's talking about living water and all that sort of stuff. And the woman's response is, but you don't have a bucket. 
I actually picture an old English lady saying that. I don't know why, but anyway, it's clearly not because it's first century. Um, But you've got to remember culturally, living water probably meant this fresh water that flowed. Jacob's well was considered a spring. So her assumption that she was talking about the well... And it was about 30 to 40 metres deep, so it wasn't like you could just scoop it. And her comment is actually appropriate to one whose comprehension was tied to the earthly and material world. So we sort of kick this woman around a bit, but it's actually really understandable that she's misunderstanding. So the woman is firmly grounded in the material world, the things that she can see, the things that she can touch, the things that she can understand. Anyone relate to that? Jesus, on the other hand, is constantly trying to lift her vision, the conversation, to a higher plane, to lift her understanding and her vision from the material world to the spiritual reality that he actually is operating in. So Jesus says, living water, she's like, no bucket. But then Jesus responding to her as softly and as easy as he does, doesn't allow the woman to remain in this material world. He doesn't go back down to her level. He constantly keeps trying to lift her vision to something beyond what she's thinking. We'll read verses 13 and 14 again. And Jesus said, so this is in response to the the Samaritan woman, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. So he's emphasising this contrast between the water in the well and this living water. The thing is, the water in the world does satisfy your thirst. But that's why we fall for it again and again and again. Because it seems life-giving. It seems thirst-quenching. But the thing is, often if anyone's been stuck in that cycle, which I think most of us can relate to, the cup that used to satisfy us yesterday, we now need a bucket to satisfy the same needs. And it gets more and more and more. And our lives spin further and further out of control. That's where addiction comes in. The, Jesus, the, the, the water that Jesus is offering here, as he says, quenches, quenches our thirst forever. And the living water that Jesus gives is such that those who receive it are permanently satisfied. And as Jesus says, the living water that is received then becomes in the person a vigorous stream issuing forth that births eternal life. And if we don't accept this free gift of this living water, of the Holy Spirit, 
and we try to do it in our own by building our own cisterns, then according to Jesus, we do not have eternal life. Can't build your, life, your eternal life yourself. Eternal life comes only through the presence of the Holy Spirit. But this is where it gets good. Because if the promise of eternal life isn't enough for you, the life that Jesus gives is not a stagnant thing. It's a free-flowing thing. And we often talk in terms of Jesus dies for our sins that we can be saved. And that's, that's true. But a life in Christ is so much more than merely the entrance into a new state. That of being saved instead of lost. It is a life that is abundant. John chapter 10 verse 10 tells us that I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. So the question is, what does this abundant life look like? So the water that Jesus gives in the form of the Holy Spirit quenches our thirst for everything but him. The thing is, the thirst for Jesus is not met by removing the desire for his living water. Because you don't drink of the living water once and then that's it. There's this continual thing and you realise that once you've drunk of it once, nothing else satisfies The promise, again, we need to be reminded, is that the living water of Jesus doesn't have to be drawn up by hard labour. You don't need a bucket. The well isn't 40 metres deep. It becomes a well that springs up from within us. This is the abundant life that Jesus is talking about in John chapter 10, verse 10. And what Jesus is describing here is new covenant. The Old Testament has several passages that predict new covenant. Talks about new creation, um, a new way of relating to God, a new heart that can know and experience God, a new heart that hungers to do the will of God. This is the outworking of an abundant life. Uh, the verses in Ezekiel 36 that we read earlier speak about that. I'm not going to go through them again. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 34. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. That I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The one will not be like the covenant, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though 
I am, the, I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32 says something similar. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonder in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord, of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, for there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. As the Lord promised, among the survivors, the Lord calls. This new covenant that we have, that we're invited into, the free gift that Jesus offered, the living water, his presence, his spirit, new life, new heart, new covenant, new everything, poured out on all humanity for all time. So who's intrigued by Jesus' offer of living water? I am. The woman is. She asked to have some. Verse 15. Give me this water. I want it. What she didn't realise, though, is that if you want to take up Jesus' offer of running pure water bubbling up from inside you, you'll have to get rid of the stale, mouldy, stagnant water you've been living off all this time. In her case, in the Samaritan woman's case, it was her married life. I've got, to, I've got to admit, that sort of life isn't necessarily this weird, that, that weird nowadays. If you got married five times, you wouldn't be shunned by your community. She was in a state of emotional shambles. One relationship after another... Each, relation, each new relationship, each failed relationship bringing about gossip and condemnation and being shunned from her community. Um, so the question is, what's the stale, mouldy, stagnant water you've been living on? I mean, well, that's the key question, isn't it? What is the cistern that I have built that I keep going back to over and over and over again, thinking that this is going to bring me life? Because we've all got one. And if you want to get rid of it, you can't do it yourself. But you have to submit to the cleaning process. And anyone who's gone through the cleaning process will tell you that it's painful, that it's humbling, that it's sometimes exhausting, 
but it's worth it. Several years ago, I'd just finished Bible college. And um, when I started, I did it part-time, so it took me a little while. When we started, we had a baby around one. And when I finished, we had two kids. We'd bought a house um, in that time, and I had worked the entire time that I was studying. So our family was growing up, and life was busy, and all that sort of stuff. And it was hard. Anyone who's studied as a married couple with a family will know that the person who's studying is physically present but often mentally somewhere else because they're, they're busy doing the things that they do. And it sometimes feels like you're almost a single parent because the other person's really, really busy. Um, it's actually often like being a pastor nowadays. But anyway, um, so I finished. I graduated celebrating, yay, looking for new work. I can't remember if I was, if I was working or not at, uh, in a new job full-time at this stage, um, but I was probably pretty close to it if I wasn't. And I remember vividly, so I was, I was tending a, a house church, the big table at the time, and um, Simon Elliott, the, the pastor there, was talking, he was doing a, a sermon on how God often doesn't transform your life in the peaks of life, but actually transforms your life in the dips. Because life is like that. So those times when God feels distant and life feels hard and it, all of those sorts of stuff, those desert moments is where God does his best work, his best transforming work with you. And if you submit to the process, you get transformed. So we'd gone through this period of five or six years, however long it was that I was studying, and we were exhausted, both as a couple and as a family. As, like, it was just exhausted. And we thought, oh, finally we can rest. So Simon's speaking and, and um, talking about some stuff, or talking about this passage. I'm writing notes and I remember I was sort of arrested by the Spirit of God and God said to me, you're, going to, you're about to enter a dip. And I was like, oh my gosh. I remember getting in the car and telling Marnie, we were driving home and she just burst into tears. She's like, are you serious? Like how it has been so hard for so long. How can God still have more work to do? on you like seriously how long is it going to go for and so this is this and so this was the pattern for my next few months I would be going about my normal day and everything that I did every thought that I thought every conversation that I had every moment of my day all day God asked the question, where am I in that? How are you submitting that to me? How does that glorify me? Where am I in that? It was exhausting. And just when I thought I was about to break, just when I thought I couldn't take enough, 
anymore, it stopped. And I got to rest mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, about a week, maybe two. And then it would start again. Where am I in that? How does that glorify me? And that went on for months. For months that went on, that God was on my case about how does your life reflect my glory? And just like our story this morning with the Samaritan woman, Jesus putting his finger on something is often painful because that's not, it's not comfortable. When God starts going, what about that in your life? I want to know about that and I want you to submit that to me. And you go but I'm not ready. And God lovingly says, I think you are. Because the thing that, that what God taught me during that time is that he wants to be Lord in my life over everything. My thoughts, my actions, my feelings, my family, my job, what I do in my downtime, Everything. I heard an analogy once. Um, it was actually from J. John. Does anyone remember who J. John is? He's an Anglican canon, um, amazing speaker. And he gave, I'm sure he didn't come up with it, but he certainly told it. But he's like, he was talking about how our life is often like a house. And God knocks on the door. And you go, ah, welcome. Welcome, God. Come into my house. Come into my life. And you shut the door. And then you open the cupboard and go, get in there. Boom. You can come into my life, but on my terms. But then you realize that God's a bit sneaky. And night he sneaks out of the cupboard. And he knocks on your bedroom door and goes, what's going on in there? I want to be Lord of that also. And then he knocks on the door of your cinema room and goes, how do you spend your downtime? What are you watching and consuming? I want to be Lord of that also. And I'm sure you can extrapolate the analogy of that. The thing is, you can call yourself a follower of Christ. You can come to church every Sunday, but you can never but you can still be in that situation and never have fully given your life to God. That you're still living on this stale, moldy, horrible water that doesn't satisfy. God has a claim on every human life. And his claim on our lives is absolute. Now, some people acknowledge that. And submit to that. And some people flee to the hills to avoid it. Now we can try and avoid it like the Samaritan woman did. 
But the very central purpose of Jesus' mission was to bring the life of heaven to birth on this earth. And all of your excuses to avoid that topic are quite frankly irrelevant. The king is the king, whether you want him to be or not. But God's claim on your life also has an offer. And for all who give up the stagnant water and come to him for the living water, it's an offer of a new kind of human life full of freedom, full of abundance, and ultimately, eternal life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in the quietness now, I pray that you do business with your people. Heavenly Father, I pray that in each one of us in this room this morning that you begin to speak to us about the systems that we've built. And in your loving way, Father, I pray that you begin to lift our understanding of, of who you are and the gift of life that you offer us. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you soften hearts, that you open eyes and open ears, Father, that people become humble enough and brave enough to step into the reality of who you are and what you call them to be. And Father, I pray this morning that that you don't stop doing that for us. Father, that you help us to realize that this isn't a one and done, that our lives are given freely and that we submit to them to you over and over and over again, Father, and that <clears throat> you are in our thoughts, in our words and our deeds. We pray this morning that we are able to submit all of those things to you this morning. And Father, that this isn't a, a life of loss or a life of poverty father but it is a life of abundance and a life that is full of joy and hope because you are the hope of the world heavenly father this morning we declare your kingship over our lives we declare ourselves your subjects And Father, we pray this morning that we, as we begin to outwork that in our own journeys, Father, that you help us to step lightly on the footpath that you have in front of us, Lord. That we stay close to the light that you give so we don't get lost. Help us, Father, every day, every moment of every day, Lord, to follow you to submit to the process that you have, Lord, because ultimately we know and we declare that you are good and that you are trustworthy and that you are safe with our hearts and with our lives, Lord. And that if we do that, Lord, we will go on an adventure that we could never, ever possibly create for ourselves. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Amen.